Bienvenidos, everybody. Welcome back to Seminary for the Rest of Us. As always, Sabrina here because I haven't gone anywhere yet. I might be slow, but I'm still tenacious. Um, in fact, uh, we're about to launch into episode 20 here. Episode 20 is a conversation I had with Hannah Bowman about an essay she wrote fleshing out her thoughts on substitutionary atonement theology. Hannah is a graduate student in religious studies at Mount St. Mary's University, Los Angeles, a literary agent, and a prison abolitionist. The founder and director of Christians for the Abolition of Prisons, she writes and teaches on the Christian theology supporting abolition. She's also a circle coordinator for the Los Angeles Pilot Schools of Support and Accountability Restorative Justice Prison Reentry Program in collaboration with the Fresno Community Justice Center. Currently, in our U.S. context here, um, our so-called justice system is heavily punitive and uses people, particularly black and brown folks, as its scapegoats. Might theology have something to do with this, particularly uh, penal substitutionary atonement theology? In our conversation, Hannah explains how we can rethink substitutionary atonement theology in a non-punitive sense and use Jesus's solidarity in his crucifixion with victims and perpetrators of harm to anchor abolition theology and thus the transformative and restorative justice from which it flows. But let's also think about how the resurrection plays into this. Uh, check out the show notes uh, for some of the resources that Hannah mentions if you want to dig into abolition theology. And as always, write and let me know what you think. <laughs> uh, thanks for joining me, Hannah. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm really glad to be here. So I'm going to start off with, uh, I read your essay um, from Substitution to Solidarity, and the subtitle is An Abolitionist Atonement Theology, and I kind of really stoked to touch on that with you today a little bit, but first I want to ask you, uh, what's something fun or something enjoyable that you've done recently, and that can be by your terms recently? You know, my uh, my favorite thing to do in this pandemic time is go to the beach. Um, I live in Los Angeles, and so we're not too far from beaches that are not too crowded. And I have a, a daughter who is three, and so we all really enjoy going out whenever we can get away from work, going out to the beach and just sort of sitting on the beach and staring at the ocean and not being near people. And it has become increasingly important to me as uh, as the pandemic has gone on and most of the usual things to do in the city are gone. So that's my, that's my happy place for the day is imagine being on the beach. Oh man. Um, it's not very warm over here. Uh, we don't really have any nice beaches. Uh, we're over in near Seattle, but, uh, I do really miss going to the beach like down South when it's warm because <laughs> I grew up in Southern California and that was like a summer thing we did every summer. Uh, yeah, we went the, to the beach somewhere. The beaches are wonderful. The water is cold. 
and especially at this time of year, but even in the summer, honestly, the water is cold. So we don't actually go in the water very much, although lots of other people do. But I like, I'm like, a, I, I could just like lie on the beach. I'm a, I'm a person who likes to lie on the beach and, and listen to the, like, listen to the waves crash and maybe go put your feet in and it can just be a little bit of, of zen. I like being able to stare into the ocean and feel like it just goes on and on and on. Yeah, that's very relaxing. So... I was reading your essay and I was thinking um, that it's so interesting um, here in the US um, where most people like to claim Christian heritage and Christian values, uh, even to the point where most of these people uh, will acknowledge that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, uh, right? Uh, but we are still so fixated on punishment and like revenge and retribution um, and saying things like, well, Jesus died for your sins, but you still have consequences. <laughs> um, but when they, what they really mean, what they really mean by that is that you're, you're going to be punished for that thing that you did um, that you weren't supposed to do. Uh, why do you think we have uh, this fixation as a culture and how? Do you think um, these um, common substitutionary atonement theories, and I'm referencing um, penal uh, substitution uh, atonement and also uh, um, the moral, the debt, moral debt paid at Anselm. Um, what's your take on that? Well, so I'm going to give like a little bit of context on my work because I think, you know, for your listeners to know that I come to this from a prison abolitionist perspective and I came as a Christian to this sort of second conversion experience to abolition, right, and away from retribution. So I think the short answer to your question, I think, is that retribution feels good. It feels somehow like we're setting the world right. It's not setting the world right, um, but it's we have valid anger when we are hurt and when, when people are hurt and when injustice is done, the anger about that, the anger about harm is valid and the sense that something is owed is valid. And so from that, essentially retribution feels good because it feels like an easy way to lash out in response to that. It's an easy way to put that anger into effect. It's not a productive way, right? But it's easy. And so I was really inspired on a lot of this work um, a few years ago, I read a blog post by Morgan Guyton, who's a Methodist pastor, and his point was exactly this, like, why do you want, he was talking about undocumented immigrants, and he was saying, if you want undocumented immigrants to be punished, then you don't believe in Jesus Christ, right? And he didn't go as far as abolition. He didn't say, oh, well, you can't punish your children. You can't have, you know, quote, consequences, which is a fancy liberal way of saying punishment. Um, but he, his point was you can't desire retribution for its own sake because somehow Jesus ended punishment. And I got really interested in that question and in that sort of real, real provocation provided by these atonement theories that are very common, right? And these, these atonement theories that say, oh, Jesus died for your sins. And what would it mean if we took that seriously to mean that punishment is over? And how do you work that out in a theological way that is sensible? Because the other piece of it is, as you say, recognizing that even though to me, it seems like, oh, the fact that Jesus died for your sins should mean the end of punishment, however we understand that, to a lot of people and in the long history of Christian theology, it has not meant that. It has been used to say, oh, look, Jesus died for your sins because punishment must be paid. And this is sort of 
a parallel on a divine scale of what we should be doing in our own human lives, right? You pay punishment for sins in the things you've done in the human sphere, and then whatever is left over essentially is owed to God, right? That's, and some of that's in place in things like Anselmian satisfaction or in things like it's really sort of most present in Calvin's understanding of, of substitution, which is very punished very punitive, very punishment-based, that Jesus had to bear the punishment for, you know, sinful human beings, right? Um, and which really sets Jesus and God the Father kind of in opposition. It also, I think, did not develop in a theological vacuum, because theology doesn't develop nope. in a vacuum, but it developed along with everything that was going on socioculturally, and particularly in American theology and in Western theology more generally in a, in a very white supremacist context. And so part of what has happened is this mutual imbrication of the development of, of racial racialization and of, of white supremacy in America and the development of these theological narratives. So like a great example of this, this is from Rima Vesely Flood's work, is about the Puritan dual covenant theology, right? Which in theory is not about race. In theory, it's about how some people, Christians, are covenanted children of God and everybody else are mere creatures. But in practice, this was being developed and practiced and was the theology of the Puritans who were in America who were, who were saying, look, there's, you know, white Christians who are covenanted children and indigenous Americans and, you know, black people, enslaved black people who are somehow not covenanted children. And so this is an example of how those, those theological categories became racialized because of their socio-historical context. And I think with atonement theologies, the same things happened. So you can read like Nikia Smith-Roberts work is the best I know of on this. And her point is precisely that as soon as you develop a theological narrative that says, well, there has to be a sacrifice in order to pay this debt, that it, that it has to be passed off to somebody. And it's supposed to be Jesus who's the satisfaction. But what actually happens is that marginalized people, and her point is in America, mostly black people, end up being the sacrifice who keep being, you know, sort of sacrificed to preserve the status quo, to preserve the workings of power. And so her argument is that this logic of sacrifice is inescapable. And what happens is that once you say, here's this logic of sacrifice as it plays out theologically, you can't unentwine that from the way it ends up playing out socioculturally harmfully. Yeah. Um, and you do, um, you do bring that up quite a bit uh, in your essay about how the carceral, carceral system still is still, it's still really discriminatory discriminatory uh in that way against um black folks and in particular but also and i'm forgive me if you didn't mention but probably also the indigenous folks as well um and it's really important um to to kind of examine the justice system <laughs> and a lot of people uh, in the dominant culture, um, we just assume that things uh, play out the same for everyone because they play out that way for us, and that's really not true. Um, but uh, in your essay, use a methodology of constructing a re what you call a reverse discourse um, to argue that we can reframe substitutionary atonement um, 
particularly from an abolition theology perspective. Um, and can you say more about uh, what a uh, reverse discourse is and uh, why um, you kind of chose it, chose it to present your argument? I'm not really familiar with reverse discourse. Yeah, well, so here's the here's here's what that's getting at, right? The point is that this is a really fraught topic, and I think it is rightfully fraught. Like I go into it saying, I think there is the possibility of something liberative out of a you know particular understanding of substitutionary atonement, which I should say is not you know Calvin's understanding or Anselm's understanding. It's not about paying back a debt to God, but it is about saying. I think there are ways in which this language of substitution, as we were talking about at the beginning, ways in which this idea that Christ died for your sins so there's no more punishment can be an abolitionist thing, can be a liberating thing. And I want to cling to that, but I'm also aware that it's fraught. I'm aware that it doesn't work for everybody. I'm aware that the, the womanist critiques of those kinds of atonement theories in particular are really important, right? And I'm aware of the ways in which this theology has been so horribly misused towards injustice. And the ways in which it's not fair to just describe that as a misuse because in fact the substitutionary atonement theology is complicit in the injustice right it's not just that people misunderstood it it's that it really is implicated as well and so i think it's i think it's a case where you it's not enough to just say hey, every, what if substitutionary atonement is good, actually, right? It's not enough to just say, wouldn't it be a clever, you know, kind of a clever throwaway line to say, oh, but if Jesus died for your sins, why do you still believe in punishing people? Instead, that there's some real work to be done to grapple with, like, why might you want to do that? What might you get out of it, right? So when I use that language of reverse discourse, which is borrowed from Foucault, it's about, it's about like the reclaiming of problematic concepts or the way you can take something which has been used by the dominant discourse, you know, in the service of power, in the service of injustice, and can instead reclaim elements of resistance in it. And what I think um, and what, what I argue is that there are elements of resistance within this sort of language of substitution, that there are ways in which substitutionary narratives of atonement don't just say, therefore, sacrifice is good, we should be sacrificing people, you know, we should be, we should be sacrificing people as scapegoats for the, the issues of our society and sending them to prison, but that instead, there are actually elements in there where it's resisting that narrative, where the, the actual substitutionary narratives in the atonement and, and you know Jesus passion and death is being used to say hey maybe all retribution is violence maybe all retribution is scapegoating maybe we should be undoing these systems because and somehow we should no longer be seeing punishment as a thing we rely on and part of why I think that's important is because I think I think you raise a good point and it's an essential one to talk about the fact that when you're looking at our criminal legal system, it is not providing justice, right? It is unjust. It is unjust, particularly towards people from marginalized populations. We know this. Um, and abolition is largely taken up with untangling the injustices in the system. But at the same time, part of the work of the abolition of prisons and police, right? The prison industrial complex abolition that we're talking about is building alternate ways of dealing with harm. Because if we're going to talk about prison abolition, like you know that the first question you get when you talk about prison abolition is, but what do we do with people who murder, right? Like that's, it. We, we, we've all answered that question many times. And the reality of abolition is that 
you don't necessarily have to have an answer to that as a gotcha question, but you do have to be prepared to deal with the fact that harm and violence are real and that they deserve to be taken seriously. And so for me, the value in trying to find these roots of resistance in substitutionary atonement was, first of all, to stand against retribution, because I am really wholeheartedly against the practice of retribution, but also to be able to take seriously the desire for retribution as something that, even if it can't be acted on, is still valid, that it's okay to feel hatred for people who have hurt you, that you don't have to forgive, right? Because I think we really abuse in Christian circles this rush to forgiveness. And we say, oh, but you need to be forgiving of, of injustice, that we that we that we shy away from that anger, we shy away from the the wrath of God, right? Which which as James Cone talks about is God's response to injustice. Um, and those are things that need to be taken seriously if we want to be able to talk about what it means to provide space where people can take accountability for doing harm in a serious way. Taking accountability when you've harmed someone means recognizing that you owe them something. And you may or may not ever be able to pay that back. There may or may not be a concrete way to respond to it, but that debt does exist. And so for me, it was those places where you know, in, in atonement theology, you talk about the wrath of God is satisfied on the cross. And yet when you start thinking in abolitionist terms, well, what does it mean if God has wrath and is that based on a real injustice? And what do you, and you talk about the debt that was paid by Jesus, but if you start thinking in, in abolitionist terms or in restorative and transformative justice terms, well, what is the debt that we owe when we harm somebody? That's Daniel Sarah talks about that in her book, The Debt We Owe. And what it, what happens to that debt? And so there there was for me a lot of room in those terms, in those those ideas of substitution, sacrifice, debt, wrath. What do we do when harm has happened? There was a lot of room to sort of reach for something that could be a non-punitive way of responding to harm that still says something is owed, something has to be done, right? That leaves room for accountability, that doesn't rush to forgiveness. And I think the other thing that's important to recognize is that our criminal legal system is very much built on a binary between victims and perpetrators. Mariam Kaba talks about this, that you're either a victim or a perpetrator of violence. And of course, that's not true. We are all of us, you know, both people who have done harm and people who have been harmed. But at the same time, there is you know, in any given situation of harm, there is a difference between doing harm and being harmed, right? And it's and it's a mixed up and intertwined thing because every one of us is 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 doing both, is both doing harm and being harmed kind of all the time. But we don't want to lose the fact that harm happens and that it is worth taking accountability for. And that means recognizing when people have done harm and when they have been harmed. So it means being able to hold in our minds this complexity, right, of people may have done harm because they were previously harmed because of past trauma. And we should understand that. And we want to have a complete picture of that, but that doesn't excuse the harm they've done to other people, right? And so we can say hurt people hurt people, but that doesn't mean we just say, oh, therefore, if you're acting out of your, your trauma, out of your previous harm, out of your own hurt, it doesn't matter. And so for me, this was also a way of getting at this complexity of what does it mean to be a perpetrator and what does it mean to be a victim and what does it mean that there has to be a distinction there without flattening it into a binary where people are on one side or the other because avoiding the distinction also does I think great further trauma to survivors of harm right yeah uh, thank you for that um, and so your conclusion um, when 
shall we say, uh, reconstructing maybe uh, substitutionary atonement um, is that uh, it can work uh, in two ways. Um, the first way is that um, Jesus took on uh, the debt of harm, I think is a term that you use. And so therefore, uh, he takes away the need to act out um, in retribution. And then the second is that, um, and I was very, very familiar with the concept of Jesus uh, taking solidarity or having solidarity with victims um, through his crucifixion, because we see that a lot, um, even just in the little bit of reading I've done uh, from James Cone, like the idea that, you know, the lynching um, and crucifixion um, are analogous. Um, so the debt of harm is paid because Jesus pays that, but also Jesus takes a solidarity with victims and perpetrators. Is that kind of summarizing? Right. Well, I've got basically two arguments, right? And the first one is this thing we've been talking about, about undoing retribution. And I try to be a little careful about saying, well, the debt of harm is paid because I don't actually think that's quite how it works. I think the, the restorative debt, I think when we harm someone, we still owe them something, right? And that's what making amends is. But what I actually argue is that what Jesus does is interrupt the relationship by, by which the debt of harm that, that you owe when you've done harm to somebody becomes something that can be turned back around in retribution. So there's this weird, almost like neoliberal economization of harm that happens, right, in punishment where we say, oh, I owe you a debt in a relationship because I've harmed you. But then instead it becomes like this free floating, almost monetary debt that it's like, oh, but if you punish me, then that somehow, evens out the scales, right? It gets separated, abstracted away from the relationship, abstracted away from the fact that I actually have to do something to help you heal. That's what pays the debt. And so what I'm arguing is that actually what Jesus does is not affect the debt in terms of my responsibility to help you heal, but, but gets in the way of this weird abstraction by which we say, oh, but punishment turns the debt around and pays it off, right? It sort of, it, 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 it makes, it gets rid of the possibility of treating the debt as a fungible commodity, as something that you can kind of pass off. Because if you can turn it back on me, then, well, you could also turn it back on Jesus or any other, you know, innocent scapegoat. And when you see that happen, when you see Jesus in this position of sort of paying the debt, quote, for the world, you see it as a, as a violent transfer. I rely heavily on Mark Heim's work on scapegoating in the crucifixion. Um, you see it as a violent scapegoating act. And, and my argument is, well, that's revealing what it always was, that it's not that it was somehow okay to transfer this harm back in punishment once on the guilty party, but then you can't do it any further or it's scapegoating and it's bad, but that in fact, abstracting it into this commodity that can be turned back on people that is, is always violent and is always a misunderstanding of the actual obligation, which is an obligation oriented towards healing. So that's one part of it is this sort of revelation of the violence inherent in, in what we understand as paying debt and retribution. And then the other part is this idea that, that God's solidarity is doubled, that God is in solidarity with those who are guilty or with us insofar as we are guilty, as well as being in solidarity with those who are harmed or with us insofar as we are harmed. And part of that derives from 
you know, it, it's honestly, it drives sort of from Luther's idea of the, the miraculous, the happy exchange, right? That somehow Christ takes on our, our sinfulness and we take on his righteousness. And that's an idea that's in its own way problematic, but is another sort of different view of substitution that's about saying, look, here is how God is with us. And so for me, divine solidarity with humanity is, is just a, a sort of a priori premise of atonement, right? Like fundamentally, the way atonement works is that God comes to be in solidarity with us in all of our complexity. And talking about it as a doubled thing is a way of saying, yeah, God is there for those who have been harmed. And God is also there for those who are guilty of doing the worst harm. And I really believe that, you know, I'm a universalist. I believe in divine solidarity with everybody. But that the way in which God can be in solidarity with those with us insofar as we're guilty or harmed has to be different, right? That again, God's solidarity with the guilty can't somehow erase the fact of the harm having happened. It can't erase the fact that there's a difference between whether you've done harm or been harmed in a situation. And again, that's a complex thing, but the reality is that when harm occurs, if you're responsible for it, God may be in solidarity with you anyway as a responsible party, but that doesn't mean the harm magically goes away. And so again, it's trying to interrogate some of that push towards forgiveness or reconciliation that often comes out of Christian theology in abusive ways. It's trying to interrogate that idea that, well, you know, we've all sinned. And so God forgives everybody by saying, no, the way in which God forgives us or the way in which God is on our side, the way in which God is in solidarity with us is different depending on what our role is in a situation of harm. And so when we've been harmed, God is there with us to heal from being harmed. And when we've done harm, God is there with us to heal from doing harm, which partly means recognizing the harm and making amends for it. And so that's, that's sort of this idea that it's a doubled solidarity, that it's not it's not one size fits all, that somehow atonement is not a, a one size fits all phenomenon where everything is wiped away and nobody gets to talk anymore about the harm that's been done, but instead is a transformation that's fundamentally based on the understanding that God is present with all of us in this complex way that allows the harm to be transformed, which is a really important concept in transformative justice, that harm can be transformed rather than sort of being erased or forgiven. Yeah, um, and I was thinking about um, what you're saying about how uh, people tend to use uh, the phrase or the, the Jesus uh, died for everybody's sins. So like the slate, it like you don't have to worry about it anymore. But in application, it tends to go more towards uh, the privilege than it is those who are not as privileged because you usually find like for example victims of uh spiritual abuse like in the church uh being dictated to forgive whoever perpetrated that harm towards them but like the reverse is not true <laughs> um so that was just something uh i was thinking about that uh we do uh, even if we, even if people don't go so far as uh, to claim uh, abolition theology, although I would hope that they do, um, we still have to interrogate, interrogate how our conceptions of atonement play out um, into real life situations. Um, and so 
uh, that's something else I'm curious about is how have you seen this uh, play out or how um, how do you imagine this uh, playing out in concrete situations? So what you're hearing is already that I'm really reacting against the sort of forgiveness culture of Christianity as it's been misused. Um, and I think that is really an abuse of our theology. I've noticed that in Christian and, and especially in I think white Christian spaces, we're very good at talking about forgiveness and not very good at talking about accountability. And that's not to say those words never come up. They certainly come up in evangelical churches, although not so much in the main line. And I think the way they're used in conservative churches are also not maybe uh, great, but we don't have a good cultural understanding of accountability because we've been so caught up in our cultural construction of punishment that we basically think of accountability and punishment mm -hmm. as the same thing. It's like we were saying about consequences, yeah. right? that all these things, and of course, consequences don't have to be about punishment. And I know I keep mentioning Maryam Kaba, whose book is amazing, but in her book, she talks about the fact that consequences are not necessarily punishment, that consequences might be losing your platform or your power, but we don't want you to be destitute because of that, right? We don't want losing your platform to mean you lose your job and you can't provide for yourself or for your family. That's that because that would be punishment, right? That the goal is not for people to suffer, although the although consequences can require shifting power relations in ways that might be uncomfortable, but that they're not doing they're not harmful. Um, and I bring that up because I think we are very bad at talking about accountability, even when we get as far as using that language, we talk about hold accountable, by which we mean basically, how can we punish you so you'll be accountable when the reality is you can't force someone to take mm -hmm. accountability. What you can do is create compassionate spaces where that hard work of accountability can take place and where you can hope people will be willing to take accountability. But what you can do is create spaces which are accepting, but also truth telling, right? And um, so I think the way that relates to this atonement theology that we're talking about is that it really requires this shift in our thinking away from sort of there's punishment and there's forgiveness. And while we have to insist on forgiveness and reconciliation because the other alternative would be punishment, would be that we're punishing people and we know somehow in our hearts that that's wrong, right? Um, because Jesus died for our sins or whatever. We know it's wrong to be punishing people, especially privileged people, but, but that's another complexity, but we don't know what to replace it with. We don't know how to think about accountability and transformation and this idea that healing can come. And as we are healed, part of that is that we begin to be able to take accountability for the harm we've done. And so that's a place where I think that this, these ideas can really play out is partly in encouraging us to deconstruct the, the emphasis on retribution in our thinking, but also on this sort of turn towards hey, instead of talking about forgiveness and reconciliation as the goal, let's talk about accountability, transformative justice, transforming harm, starting from a baseline of compassion and holding compassionate space where accountability can be taken. And we can hope that forgiveness might come out of that, but it's not guaranteed, right? We can't manufacture situations of forgiveness, but we can manufacture situations of, of compassion for common humanity and 
practicing taking accountability. Mia Mingus talks about how we practice taking accountability in small things so we're ready to deal with the big things. And what I've noticed is that we're not even very good at practicing it in small things in our churches and our communities. And so how can we intentionally cultivate these practices of accountability, which again are not punitive. They're not scary. They're about how do we grow and heal and become more deeply in community with each other. And how can we practice that so that then when we have to deal with the bigger, scarier harm, we're able to do so. We're able to take accountability and we're able to hold space for that so that we can eventually have, you know, maybe even a hope of something like forgiveness or reconciliation, or even if we don't get there so that we can be on this process of transformation. So for me, the practices are very much about that. I think the other thing that's essential is that Again, like we were talking about, right, this, this system is also based on scapegoating, which in our culture is racialized. It falls along marginalized lines. And so ultimately for us to recognize that God has this, you know, doubled solidarity with, with those who are guilty, with those who are criminalized, and those are not the same category, um, as well as with those who are harmed, is not only to say, okay, let's do restorative justice, let's heal relationships, let's transform harm, but also to say, let's do this in a way which is intentional about the harms that have been done by our criminal legal system and by our racist history. And so let's be sure we are standing in solidarity with those who are constructed as criminalized, whether or not they've done harm, right? With those who are black and often that means being in our society being constructed as criminalized because blackness is constructed as criminalized. Let's work for the real transformation of those underlying injustices. And that ultimately I think the divine solidarity with, you know, this double divine solidarity with those who are criminalized requires that of us as well. Yeah, um, and that's amazing. And also, uh, I was thinking about this too, um, as people who believe uh, in the, his, well, not even, not even historic, not even historical reality, but they don't even have to accept little uh, physical resurrection, but as people who do like acknowledge that story, um, the death, the burial and resurrection of Jesus, um, to me that takes uh, imagination. And so it kind of saddens me when we don't continue to apply that imagination and uh, imagine uh, what we could do uh, beyond punishment to, as you say, keep people accountable um, and kind of uh, use it for transformative purposes and not punitive purposes. Um, so uh, for people who are more curious about this, I know you have a lot of resources to start thinking about transformative justice and abolition theology. <laughs> um, do you wanna talk a little bit about where they can find that? I will. And first, I'm going to throw in a comment about the materiality of the resurrection because you brought it up, because I have been really affected recently reading John Sobrino, who is a Latin American liberation theologian who writes about resurrection precisely as that this is the, uh, the vindication of victims. And of course, he's not the only one who, who writes about this. Jürgen Moltmann and, and various others write about resurrection as vindication, but he really works it out to, to, to connect the materiality of the resurrection to the material hope of victims. And I think that's really important as we grapple with abolition theology to recognize that whatever we think about the physicality or not of Jesus resurrection, that if we want to believe that it is something 
real or material, yeah. or I don't even quite know what word I want to use, right? Because I'm not, not, not huge into the historical physicalness of it, but that there is an importance that it is material and that materiality plays out in the actual transformation of real material systems in the world. And I think that's the essential thing is that he's not just saying, I am a spirit beyond the grave, promising you a life beyond the grave, but is in fact saying this life beyond the grave, this is, is a material thing that's real in our world now. And that's really, what we believe, that's what we attest or affirm when we say, well, that's why abolition is possible, right? For Christians, we believe abolition of prisons and policing and all these systems of, of death and punishment is possible because we believe that's part yeah, of this you. working Actually, out of this material that, yeah. resurrection <laughs> Jesus. Okay, so that was exciting. If you want to read when they hear more about that, you can look at my website, christiansforabolition.org, which is full of resources, some by me and some by others, as we're building this Christian movement towards the abolition of policing in prisons. Um, I, I do education, both in terms of written resources, which are on the site, and essays and podcasts like this. And I also can do webinars and classes and meet with groups and have conversations and answer all your church questions about abolition. Um, my goal, I, I see my audience as primarily sort of white mainline churches, progressive churches that are not quite sure about taking the leap to being abolitionist churches. And I would like you to be abolitionist churches. And so that includes the praxis of solidarity with those who are incarcerated incarcerated or formerly incarcerated with those who are criminalized, uh, with those who are actually guilty of harm and, and, and in restorative justice work there. There are a lot of ways into abolition. And the, the thing that I think is most important as you learn about this and as you start to explore restorative and transformative justice is that fundamentally it's about community and relationship. It's not just political. There are parts of it that are political activism about how do we defund the police? How do we stop investing in prisons? How do we invest in communities instead? But from a Christian and particularly a congregational perspective, I think there's an enormous amount of work that we can just do by interrogating how we talk about forgiveness and accountability and punishment by letting an understanding of abolition and an abolitionist analysis change our own theology and change our own thinking and change how we live in our relationships with each other in our communities and then letting that build out into a more systemic change as well. So there are lots of ways in and only some of them are political. Um, Christiansforabolition.org is the hub for all of these things. And thank you, come and learn. Yeah, uh, thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate uh, that we got to uh, connect uh, finally. Um, I've really appreciated uh, learning from you uh, via other podcasts, actually. <laughs> um, so I just, I'm really grateful that uh, we got to connect and uh, you got to uh, share um, about uh, your work on substitutionary atonement theology from an abolitionist perspective. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was really great to be here with you. This was Seminary for the Rest of Us. As always, Sabrina Reyes-Peters here, your host and producer. Uh, find us on the web at seminary.show. Send us an email at seminary.show at gmail.com. Uh, if you're into Twitter and Instagram, those handles are in the show notes. And last but not least, if you want to show a little extra love, 
go ahead and give this little podcast a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much.